to our interview series on brave feminine leadership. I'm incredibly privileged today to have Catherine Fox join the conversation. Catherine, thank you for joining. A pleasure. So I'm going to quickly touch on a bio for you and then we'll jump straight into the conversation. So um, Catherine has three decades as a journalist and an advocate and is one of Australia's leading experts on leadership, future of workplaces and the status of women. Uh, my questions are piling up already. Her career has included interviewing management gurus, Nobel Prize winners and international CEOs. She's written five books, won a Walkley Award, presented at conferences and appeared in the media around Australia and internationally. Catherine, an absolute pleasure to have you here, as I said. For people in our audience who haven't had the pleasure of coming across you before, let's start with um, who are you as a human being? And let's jump into your story and, and your career. Who am I as a human being? I suspect I'm still a very irritated um, feminist um, who was probably uh, my co-author, Kirsten Ferguson, the board director, a uh, wonderful woman. She used to say, Catherine, I suspect you're a feminist in utero. Um, and she, she may well be right. So it's very hard for me to map when this became a particular um, passion of mine, but I feel like I've always been quite acutely aware of unfairness. And, and I just want to hasten to add, because my family was fantastic. So I had two brothers and one sister. We were very, my parents were very, very fair had the same expectations for their daughters as their sons, which was not typical of the time. So who am I? I'm, um, I am a writer. I think that's, that's where, when I really hit my straps and that's how I do my thinking is when I'm writing. So I've loved writing all my life. I am at heart, of course, um, a journalist. If, you, if I ask to describe what I do day to day, that's what I do. Uh, and then I became an author on top of that. And it is a, it's a different set of skills, of writing skills, but not exactly the same. Um, but grew up in a very, very middle class, uh, very conservative family, actually, heavily um, Catholic. So we were culturally Catholic from our origins forward from basically long ago from Irish convict stock. So that's that's kind of my my heritage, if you like. Um, but I was also so fortunate, Melissa, that I went through high school in the 70s. And when I was ready to go to university, Gough Whitlam abolished fees. And it, it was absolutely a seminal social change. So I went to university for free. It, it probably at a struggle, my parents probably could have sent me, but I suspect a lot of young women wouldn't have. And the people that I met at university were the first in their families ever to walk into a university. It was a profound social change in Australia. So it was an extraordinary era. It was also the era when a lot of radical feminists um, were laying out some very, very, very black and white ways of living. And in fact, when I was at uni, there were quite a lot of radical feminists that I mixed with, um, which was absolutely eye-opening to me and crystallised some of the unease I had felt at what I was observing, certainly within the the Catholic Church, but in society in general. So that was set me on a path, I suspect. Um, I didn't go straight into journalism from that. I actually had a couple of other jobs in the corporate sector, joined the Financial Review when I was in my late 20s. They called us mature age cadets, which was hilarious and is a contradiction in terms in some ways. Uh, but I absolutely knew from the moment I walked into the newsroom 
that I was in the right place. I had found my tribe. And that's a lovely feeling. It doesn't always happen. And I know that it doesn't because in my first couple of full-time jobs, it hadn't happened. But I knew then that was where I wanted to be. And um, that feeling has never left me. I still have an extraordinary cohort of journalist friends who I see regularly. I just, um, I love the thrill of journalism. It has its highs and lows, but uh, I absolutely love it. And I think that's because as a tribe, journalists are curious, very curious people and they have very high scepticism antenna. So they're always looking at, well, what's at, what's at stake here? What's behind this? And I think increasingly those are really crucial skills. Um, I left the financial review, oh, nearly 10 years ago. So I took a redundancy and I'm freelance. So now I fluctuate between some freelance writing. Um, I've been writing more books. Uh, I do quite a lot of public speaking. So mm -hmm. I, I moderate panels and discussions and do conference work. And it's, it's a combination of those things, all of which I thoroughly enjoy. So, Catherine, um, tell us about, were there any, you know, you said you'd already noticed some sort of unfairness and things going on around you, and it's hard yeah. to sort of pinpoint the point at which you, you know, really became aware and started focusing on that. But what were some of the things you saw? Oh, I saw, it was absolutely blatant. And I, it's very interesting when I tell my daughters and have told them over the years, uh, at least half of my year 10 group at my all girls school left school mm. at the age of 15, quite normal. Uh, and many of them left because their parents had told them, uh, in particular their fathers, but some of their mothers as well, there was no point in them continuing. Uh, they would get married and have children. That was their role in life. Um, this isn't that long ago, by the way. No. Um, uh, we weren't encouraged to study science or maths. And Melissa, you'll know from my work that I have very strong views on this. We weren't encouraged. It wasn't a lack of appetite on our behalf. We weren't encouraged. Uh, we were told that there were certain avenues that were appropriate for women, uh, but basically we were caregivers. That was our priority. So... Um, I'm not sure what happened then. <laughs> yeah. we'll, um, we can edit that bit out anyway. But um, yeah, it just suddenly popped up. Just dropped, yeah. Yeah, dropped the visual out. So okay, so um, okay, so let's let's jump straight into like, is there a why behind what you do? I mean, I get the fairness and those sorts of things, but you know what what drives you because you've been. You've been on this, um, you know, for, for a long time and that takes a lot of sustained energy to keep focused on that. What's the why? The why for me is I cannot stand the hypocrisy and double standards that drive women into the ground quite literally. So the onus on them uh, to be great caregivers and mothers and housekeepers uh, and then the oh but you know then you can't work in the same way as a man in the paid workforce well sorry we can't promote you or give you a salary that is suitable um, it just it's all of these things that and then we turn and blame women for it and I have this and I you know I'm quite happy to say this now I didn't in the past it irritates the life out of me it really does and I know you shouldn't say that anger is, you should always control your anger, and that's absolutely true, but I do get angry about it, but that motivates me to see it change. And I think that I've never been more aware of that. Um, and the other thing, if you ask me why I keep going now, 
is because at my stage of life, I can say things and do things that it's much harder to do when you're mid-career and you're an employee. I'm not. So I feel almost an onus on me to speak up, uh, to point out some of this, to do as much as I can to make life fairer, just fairer and easier. We're nowhere near an even playing field. But for a lot of women, and especially women from culturally diverse backgrounds, especially disabled women, women from the LGBTIQ plus community, it is a double whammy. And it, it's holding us back as a country and an economy. So that kind of level of concern continues for me. Um, I don't find that I have to um, reinvigorate myself a lot because just about every day, especially we're speaking in the middle of a federal election campaign, I'm just staggered by how much we, we have to change. On the flip side, the other part of why I keep going is I think we can change. Yes. I absolutely believe if I wasn't innately an optimist, I would not do this. So I always remind people of that because they say, oh, well, why don't you? Because I think we can change. That's why. So let's go to the corporate woman column that you wrote for 20 years. Uh, on and off, yeah, roughly. On, on and off for 20 years. So in the Australian Financial Review, the corporate women column, um, what change did you see? In, you know, oh, of time? quite a lot. No, quite a lot. Um, can I just say one of it was It was such a labour of love. I, I thoroughly enjoyed writing it. I didn't set the column up, and I'm always very clear. Um, we think Valerie Lawson, an extraordinary journalist, probably started it with the National Times, so a long time ago. Various other people wrote it, Sue Neills, um, Cheryl Bagwell, fantastic journalists wrote it. But at one point, I remember the seat became vacant and I have to say, I'm not the most strategic person, but I was straight into the editor's office saying, can I write that? And I was quite, it was quite early in my career and he took a bit of a punt on me, uh, which was lovely. Um, so what changed was when I started writing it and when Cheryl was writing it around the same, you know, just we were kind of doing it um, in, in tandem in a way, um, it was overt sexism. That's what we were looking at, women being sacked because they denounced they were pregnant, uh, really overt sexism, or, uh, yeah, they're losing their jobs because they'd asked for a different kind of shift so that they could accommodate caring um, responsibilities. So there was very, very blatant stuff. Pregnancy and maternity discrimination was rife. Um, sadly, it still is. Uh, we don't talk about it in quite the same way, but it's certainly still there. But it was much more overt. So it was really very blatant. Um, and we still had very distinguished business leaders saying to me, look, we tried a woman once and it didn't work out. And they were serious. So that was the kind of really, really, I mean, you know, it's good to think back to that in the sense that they were awful attitudes, but I don't think they'd be expressed at all these days. I think there's still informal resentment and backlash, but I think some of that discourse has definitely shifted. Um, and the other area that's changed, I think, is that a lot of employers, larger employers in Australia, offer quite generous paid parental leave schemes and are increasingly doing so. Uh, I think we need more leadership from government on that, but I think we have seen quite a quantum leap in that particular area. I'm always interested um, in, you know, enlisting male allies, yeah. you know, traditionally still, well, not traditionally, I mean, they're still holding all the levers of power, really. Um, I'm always interested, you talk in your book, Stop Fixing Women, which I just encourage everyone to, and I know you've got so many others, but I encourage people mm. to devour it. 
Um, and, and literally when you pick it up, you do devour it because of the yeah. content there. Um, you mention um, by name some incredible male leaders through that yeah. sort of male champions of change era. You know, if you had a, a message to, um, and there's certainly a, a good degree of males in our audience, male leaders, um, yeah. you know, what would you say? Three things that you need to do to really drive this change. Um, I think one of the first things um, is to be a genuine, uh, committed leader on this. So there's been an awful lot of tokenism and rhetoric. Um, so I think of people, you're quite right, Martin Parkinson, who was running Treasury when I originally interviewed him. Um, and he's got an incredible intellect. And he said, I need proper research on this. I need someone to go through the organisation and show us. And he said, there were two penny dropping moments for him. One is that he thought it would be um, self-solving in a way, self-resolvable, uh, that just the pipeline of women would deliver. Um, and the second was, he said, a lot of the programs that we'd had to date were dealing with symptoms, but not cause. And I think, you know, those are two things for leaders to really reflect on. Um, and I know they've been encouraged, the Champions of Change Coalition has encouraged those leaders to do so. Um, but I think you know, we must get beyond the box ticking um, I am a great believer that we have to have rule change, structural change, uh, legislative change, that all is very helpful and has to happen. At the same time, if you leave other areas untended, attitudinal and behavioural, uh, then I don't think progress can be made. So I think it's that kind of combination. Um, and then I'm, I'm probably over three, but I wanted to add one. I have been struck over many years, speaking to quite remarkable women working in large uh, employers. And they'll say to me, they've set up a women's network and they've set it up for the benefit of their employer to make sure they retain talented women and get the most from them. And they have no support from their organisation. In fact, one woman told me, and this was quite recently, I've set this up, but I was told by my boss, well, I suppose you can, but do it in your own time. That is not acceptable. If you're serious about this, not only do you need to have mechanisms to support women, not to fix them, to support them, you must listen to them, please. It's such a fundamental thing. And I'm always amazed by how quite vocal fans of this area have never really listened to their own women. And I don't just mean the senior women, although of course they probably have the ear of the CEO more, more often than not, all women. You have to understand what's going on for them. And I can tell you from my experience that men who do listen are utterly shocked by the experience that women have in the same organisation as their male peers. It's, it's quite eye-opening. So those would be my main ones. In this series, um, there's several incredible male leaders that I've interviewed and um, uh, two examples that come to mind are Alistair Diaz, who's head of um, Google Cloud um, here in Australia and New Zealand, um, and also Peter Harmer, who was the CEO of IAG for many years. And both of them talked about just what you're saying. They talked about opportunities where they became aware of an unconscious bias they had. Um, and I guess the unintended consequence um, in the organisation as a result of it. And both of them were really... Um, conscious about the need to listen. I think it was as a result of some not so not so fun experiences that they had, or some shocking sort of situations that they had. But um, let's go to this um, 
The, the, I saw at the end of your book, there's a postcard that you refer to that just really made me laugh. And it was the postcard with the, the wording on it, men are from earth, women are from earth, deal with it. Yeah. Um, I loved it. But let's just talk about this whole fixing women. And I mm. just want to say, because I don't think that's changed. No, I think, I think you're right. I don't think it has either. In fact, rebooting um, stop fixing women uh, in a way uh, is something I probably need to well actually I still do talk about it a lot and um, I've had a lot of men actually say to me when they kind of had to read it because I've been coming to speak about it and they've said that's actually changed the way I've looked at this entire issue um, it, it wasn't my original idea, but a lot of us in the space have been saying for years gosh we default to this idea that it's women's fault all the time they just didn't make the right decision. Uh, they didn't get the right qualification. If only they'd done this. Um, and I was highly critical of some of that. And then it was, but actually, funnily enough, even though I was writing a book about it, it was when I pulled together the evidence that I was really struck by how pervasive that is and how much time and money uh, organisations spend on fixing us up. Um, and people always say, well, what's the one thing? The one thing is to get men to change, not us. Um, and that's not because every woman's perfect and every man is imperfect. We're all human. Power structures have been in place for thousands of years. If we're going to change them, the people who are in power have to be the ones who make the change. And they are overwhelmingly in this country white men. That's just, that's a reality. So, so what's, what's in it for them to change? Oh, I don't, I just, look, I, that's the business case. Yeah. I'm over it. We, we've made the business case for decades. Look, it's a human rights issue, actually. Uh, Women's yeah. rights are human rights. We don't have to make a business case. Yeah. We're human beings and citizens. Uh, we have every right to participate in our economy uh, and our society as anyone else does. I actually have come right round now to the point where I think this whole onus on us to make a business case has been counterproductive. Um, the evidence is there, it's been there for years. We even know now that there is a direct link, not just a correlation uh, between having a more diverse management group and bottom line results. We know that, that mm -hmm. hasn't really changed attitudes. So I think that one of the reasons stop the, the whole fixing women uh, theme is still around, it is, it obviously leaves the current system intact. It doesn't challenge current power systems and people don't like giving away power. Um, we know that from history um, and it's low hanging fruit. So, oh, there's on the one hand, you mean I've really got to look at this as a systemic problem, that's big and it is, I fully appreciate that. Um, or I could go and spend some money on another bolt on scheme to siphon off a number of senior women and send them off to mentoring. Well. When you're facing what is actually quite a big, complicated issue, there's that temptation always. And look, it's also, Melissa, at heart about a whole lot of accomplished men, many of them very smart, actually having to acknowledge to themselves they've had a massive advantage. And that if this happens, there will be more competition within their organisations, that a whole lot of talented human beings are actually not getting a fair chance and will be competing for jobs and careers. As a society, that does us good, by the way. We get return on investment of education. We're the number one in the world on educating women and girls. We have more taxpayers um, and less reliance on government payments. It's a no-brainer. But, yes, there is fear 
And a lot of that backlash is driven by fear. So that's why. Okay, so um, in the book, another thing you mentioned, it's talking about the structural kind of systemic bias um, that's in place. And you talk about speaking from experience around combining that workplace and raising a family and elderly parents is, is not necessarily conducive. How, how did you navigate your way through all of that? Or did you? Well, you, you navigate through it, but there's no answer to it. It's not... Uh, I don't think there are ever perfect formulas for that. Um, I don't think it hurts, though, to be aware that some of that pressure uh, is very unfair. And um, you, can't, you can't change it and you can't change the, sort of the dynamics. So I was in a very a, a position that was very similar to many, many women, no matter what sort of background they come from. Uh, my husband out-earned me by multiples. Uh, so he always said, keep keep your job if you know that's what wasn't up to him but he was always very supportive and I did but we relied on his income so the caring component often fell to me because he worked incredibly long hours uh, for a long time and so when that's the dynamic it's it's a tough one um, and then my parents both got ill and died within 18 months of each other right in the middle of my girls being in primary school again that sandwich generation and a lot of people go through that as well so it was yeah messy um upsetting uh very tiring uh but you know the only thing i'd say that at the end of that was i glad that i hung on to my my job in journalism oh yeah i really really was so and david was very supportive as he should be like i don't think we should sort of you know he supported me but i supported him Absolutely. massively as well so I was very glad though because I remember in the schoolyard picking the girls up from school and some of the mothers said to me later years later we used to watch you running in in your corporate suit and running out and we were off to coffee and blah blah I'm not saying bring up kids full time is easy it ain't but I knew what they were saying and then they said and now we look back and many of them were divorced kids have left home and they went oh yeah we get we get it and I said yeah it wasn't easy neither was staying home 24 7 with three small kids so I think having your own um space um if you're lucky enough to do something you like but actually to have some income of your own too yeah. massively important so so how do you feel um you know there's so much in the media around COVID has sent the case for women back um, I also see there's a great opportunity there in terms of, you know, it's if, if we could do something right here, it's a real opportunity to reimagine some of those structures and workplace. Do you see any of that happening? How do you feel about all of that? Um, I'm about to do a feature on this because I'm really interested to find out what happened. Um, right at the beginning of the pandemic, I wrote something about um, hybrid work. Well, in fact, most of it was based at working from home at that point. Uh, and a number of women I spoke to in that area who deal with this uh, and advise large organisations said, yes, there's great potential there. What is worrying and started emerging after a few months is that women actually can potentially lose out uh, because if they're, they're uh, home-based, um, and many of them, of course, were, some of their male partners, uh, or their partners, go back to the office, um, and that's where a lot of the informal argy-bargy and career discussions and progression and opportunities come up. 
uh, and women are going to, to miss out. But the other thing to remember, Melissa, it is, this is a bit confusing that I work for a not-for-profit called Australians Investing in Women. And last year, we commissioned two studies by Equity Economics to look at the impact directly of COVID on women, all women in Australia. And one of the things the second study found was that a lot of women had dropped out of the workplace full-time. They may, um, or they were working very small amounts and in very insecure jobs. So I think some of the um, more micro employment data could lead you to believe, oh no, women's jobs picked up again. Well, they did come back a bit because they're in services. So as services reopen, the, um, but the insecure nature of that employment hasn't changed. It's not well paid. Um, and a lot of women had actually not only virtually dropped out of the workplace altogether, they had also dropped out of study. So younger women had dropped out of study. Um, very, very concerning. So I'm, I'm not an optimist about some of this. I think we default. The other thing that happened right at the beginning of the pandemic, boy, did we start to be told that these gender issues are a bit superfluous. We were in an emergency. Time for men to step up. So I saw that happen really quickly. And I, was, I found that really concerning. I think, in fact, the pandemic has accelerated a backward slide on gender equity in this country. And that's terrible, um, but I think, and it's, it's, it's a shocking thing for our future. So I think at the moment, the reason we are hearing a little bit more about the whole agenda for women uh, is because it's got very bad. You get it back on the agenda. <laughs> back on the agenda, true, yeah. Um, Catherine, can I um, ask you now, um, you've had the, uh, you know, incredible privilege of interviewing so many leaders across so many different sectors um, and being such a leader yourself in this space, what's your perspective on whether leaders are born or made? Uh, I absolutely support the made side of that argument. I don't, I don't, I have a real problem with biological essentialism, which is something I address in the book. Um, and I think that's at the root of my belief in uh, women's rights. Um, I don't think I know there are differences. I've had this pointed out to me by many people. I am aware of that. I did give birth, um, even brain size. As I, I heard a wonderful neuroscientist from the UK speaking recently, and she said, if brain size uh, was an indicator of, the, uh, of intelligence, then elephants would be running the world. <laughs> I thought she made a very good point. Um, there are differences, of course there are. I don't think they're anywhere near uh, the exaggerated um, hype that we often hear. Um, and there's a whole other discussion about why that's hyped up, because often tiny little bits of scientific data are then taken. Oh, women are like this and men are like that. Um, so I certainly don't believe, if you follow that thought through, I don't believe in the idea that you're born with a set of skills yeah. that makes you a better leader. What I think is absolutely pivotal is how you're socialised, the culture you grow up in. Uh, and that combined with your personality traits, I think is where we see that those things develop or not develop, yeah. What would you call out in your own sort of, um, you know, journey? What would you call out as a couple of pivotal mo moments that kind of accelerated your leadership? Um, it's funny when you say my leadership, I don't think of myself. I think because the word leader like a lot of us, I think of someone sitting at the top of a hierarchy. Uh, and when we think of that, the wonderful academic Mary Beard wrote a wonderful essay on women and power. And she said, uh, this isn't just new, this goes back to ancient Greek uh, and Roman times. Um, and 
the very concept of leadership was masculine, the very concept of it. Um, it wasn't that women weren't considered, we just didn't have it. So this has been um, one of those areas that we've all grown up with and absorbed in such a strong way. But if, if it's about, so I, I slightly change it and I talk about influence because I think influence is something I can, I can relate to and I can see. So two things I think about that. Um, as I've explained, I have a real passion for this area. I read widely. Um, I speak to everyone that I can when, I, when appropriate for my articles, but I love social media because I get access to some of the best stuff that's written around the world, which I think is brilliant. Um, so I'm right up on it, and I know most of the data because I keep my eye on it. Having a grasp of a subject like that gives you an enormous amount of, I suppose, confidence, um, but also capacity to mount an argument, um, whether that's on a stage or in an informal social setting. I think those things have helped enormously. I, I feel like I do know this area. I like to think that I listen to others, although, you know, none of us are as, quite as good at that as we possibly should be. But I do think that I thought for such a long time um, about this. I've always taken an evidence-based approach. Uh, and I think that that brings with it a certain amount of competence about your topic. Um, and therefore a real desire to have a, have a role in leading that discussion. So I'm very happy to do that as well. And because I come from a business journalism background, that's a wonderful platform for me. I feel very comfortable in the business sector broadly uh, areas like financial services, which I've worked in. And so those are the environments that I feel really that I can contribute to. So I guess those are all ingredients. Fantastic. So um, you said something there, uh, which was interesting around just even the, your perspective of leadership. It, yep. almost, it almost seemed there was a level of discomfort with, with, um, with me saying, what a wonderful leader you you have been, you know, like you deferred that to. Um, yes. Yeah. Did it did it feel uncomfortable when I said that? Oh yeah, it always does. So I'm I fully acknowledge that. Um, and people say, "Oh, you're being a woman." Actually, I'm going to defend myself a little bit there. Good. I think of leadership and leading on a on an area like this as a very collective thing. Mm. I really do. I don't think I think we all play, but many of us in this space have been doing it a long time and quite passionate about it. Um, but I think we feed off each other, we back each other. I often mention wonderful, I was just recently sharing the stage with Sam Mostyn, the wonderful board director, um, brilliant, you know, has been on this. And we were looking at each other and saying, we've been doing this for a while, haven't we? But I always learn something from Sam. And I just think it's that combination. We do, I think, still have such an addiction to the idea of a solo uh, leader um, and I love this whole collective movement on social media hashtag me too the march for justice and so on it's women coming together and doing that jointly and so when I think about leaders I think I default to yeah that rather traditional idea if I then talk about leadership I feel a slightly more comfort level or influence as I mentioned because I think that's more of a collective for me in terms of language and I think language is important I am a writer Absolutely. Okay, so um, I'm going to ask whether you've had moments in your career of self-doubt that have held you back um, at all. Of course. Who hasn't? Good. I mean, it just, everyone does. I think when people say, oh, I've got no regrets, I think, really? <laughs> Are you human? I think 
all my regrets. Of course, things have held me back. The number of times I wished I'd spoken up in hindsight or spoken up on someone else's behalf. Um, but one of the things I would say, um, I always fess up to that. Um, and I said, please, women, don't beat yourself up about it because it's really tough. You know, it's a bit of a no-win. You feel bad later that you didn't, but if you did, you know, there are penalties for doing it. So it's not simple. Um, but one of the things I think you can learn is how to do that in the future. So maybe have a few little tactics in your back pocket and just see if you can use it, if you can change things next time. So I think there are many regrets. I'm sure I've made a couple of career or job choices, which I think later, hmm, maybe I should have done that. Maybe I shouldn't have. But honestly, I think that's, I think everyone does that. Um, but I would just say one thing, having been in this space for such, such a long time and heard many very distinguished, wonderful women give their advice because they're always asked for it. It's not something they necessarily want to, but they, what's the one thing? They'll often say, I'll oh, take risks. I don't say that. I actually think that's one of those things that you have to weigh up because the outcomes for women are very different than men. Um, so I, know, I think that even the word risk uh, in a career sense uh, is it's very different for us. So as somebody once said, Cordelia Fine, who's an academic at University of Melbourne, wonderful woman, she wrote a book about testosterone. So this idea men take risks more than women, there's not a lot of evidence for it. And she said, by the way, the riskiest thing you can do is to give birth. And I thought, yeah, it's how you define it. Like we tell women they don't have confidence. What do we mean by confidence? What are you talking about? Is chest thumping male behaviour, alpha male behaviour? I know a lot of women who have very quiet levels of confidence and are highly effective. So just, again, looking at those nuances. They're not even nuances, really. They're quite um, damning, according to gender stereotypes. So I think, yeah, being aware of those is helpful. Um, there's another section I wanted to call out because I, I hear it a lot and, and I must say I'm still surprised that I hear some of this, but there was a section yep. you talked about about the expectation around women are seen and not heard. Yep. And I had a, uh, a CFO in the construction industry um, call me the other day um, and, you know, feeling quite upset because um, the, the chair had said in one of the meetings, um, look, you talk too much for a CFO. I hear too much from you. I should be hearing more from the CEO. Yeah. Still, you know, today. Um, and um, so that was one interesting one. And then the other one was, and I just love your perspective on these. Um, the other one was an executive who was being pursued very hard by an organisation. So this is very recent. This is in a very tough job market. And so pursuing this person um, and clearly was the favoured candidate was offered the role um, important for her to work a four-day compress week. So she has a, a daughter starting school soon, wanted to get the most of that remaining nine months um, with her. And um, lots of to and fro with the organisation and a couple of the senior leaders said, look, it's fine with us, but our CEO is not on board, so we'll need to keep it on the down low. She hasn't joined them. Um, no. You know, needless to say, there are enough alarm bells. But... You know, do you still hear all of these sorts of? Yeah, yeah, and, and pretty bad ones, actually. And a lot of it's swept under the carpet. Um, and again, I mentioned earlier doing that kind of dance around rhetoric and box ticking. I think there's been an awful lot of that. And that's when I talked about it back 
backsliding on this. I think that's that's exactly right. So those attitudes are still there. Scrape back the surface and not very much, and you'll find that that's very much the attitude. Can I just add on um, women speaking too much? Um, there's a wonderful book that came out just last year, The Authority Gap. I do recommend it to anyone um, if you're interested in these areas. Marianne Seagart, who's a um, UK-based uh, journalist, and she now works with Julia Gillard at her Global Institute for Women's mm -hmm. Leadership. It's a fabulous book, um, equal parts depressing uh, and optimistic, um, but the data on this is fascinating. Now, I've mentioned being evidence-based. Go and look at the studies. There is no evidence whatsoever that women talk more than men right across society. In fact, the only evidence we have is that men talk slightly more than women. Um, and in meetings, men often talk two to three times more than women. So again, what we're, what we're um, dealing with there is a very deeply embedded gender stereotype. Um, there's no evidence for it. And I just, I, I mentioned that because any of the women listening to this, but the men also, just remind yourself that that's a perception. It's a bias that you carry. Um, but those, um, those comments that are made, it's why some of the well-meaning but very irritating advice that we hand out to women um, needs to be looked at very closely indeed. This idea you need to lean in. Women have always lent in. Um, somebody said to me, I lent in so far, they cut my head off. <laughs> we don't, when we lean in, we do not get the same reaction as a male peer. We know that there's really good data around that that's, that shows that that's the case. Um, but also it's always the onus on us. It's up to men around that table to be allies, to amplify their female colleagues, to say to someone, please don't interrupt Anne, let her finish what she's saying. Or didn't Mary mention that before? There are so many ways to change the dynamic. Don't put the burden back on us. Um, so, but yes, the comments, um, one I heard recently, it's not quite the same, but um, a quite well-known CEO in Australia who's now a zealot around gender, is walking around town telling everyone how wonderful he is about it, has had a stay-at-home wife who is beside herself with frustration um, because she didn't have an opportunity to do anything. She was at home raising his kids, very, very traditional um, division of labour in their household, and now he's become, you know, one of these heroes. And... I think that that happens all too often. So really, um, don't just say it, make sure that you've done it. In one of my earlier series, I, um, I spent some time with Professor Laura Cray, who's from the Haas School of Business in Berkeley. And, you know, she talked about two things. One was backing up what you said around that share of conversation. Um, yep. So actually encouraging people to pay attention in their meetings to what that share of conversation is and share a voice across all groups. The other thing she said that was interesting was, um, and it, it talks to the issue of why we're still not seeing as much progression with females into key leadership and CEO roles, was around span of control that, yes. that whilst you might see females moving into equal leadership roles by title, um, you know, potentially not by salary and certainly not by span of control. Do you, you've got, you know, you've spent some time looking at some of these things. What, why do you think the progress is so glacial um, with women towards those key leadership roles and CEO roles? Well, we know that they're not in the pipeline areas that lead to the corner office. So we actually do know that. Um, last year, I looked at this a bit more closely because I was asked to examine 
um, why aren't more organisations in Australia using um, quota, gender quota targets or gender targets, I suppose, yeah. not quotas, um, for women into line management? Because that's exactly the point. We do know. Now, whether that's the best way to find the best CEO, I would say let's question that whole idea that you have to be. But nonetheless, having line management experience would strike me as being one of the part of your repertoire yes. that would make you a, a rounded leader. And we have far too few women in those roles. So again, that's bias. Um, it's bias right the way through. I'm not saying it's just one cabal of men saying, no, we don't want the woman here. They would probably say to you, there aren't enough women in that pool. So we would like someone perhaps with an engineering background. I think that we have to look a little bit more creatively um, at those prerequisites for roles. I think actually once you get up the ranks, um, having that hands-on experience perhaps, uh, which might be in a male-dominated area, can be important but not the only set of experiences that can then lead you into those jobs. Project management, good project management skills, good IT skills, good marketing skills, they can lead you um, up the ladder as well. So I think we're very um, still, I think organisations are fairly traditional in what they regard as that potential for the C-suite. Um, so we still have a long way to go on that. Um, and I think anyone who's making decisions about who gets the you know, advantage of a new job or a new role or just exposure to different experience does need to look at that through a gender lens. Um, one of the areas I find fascinating is law. We have no shortage of women. In fact, as you know, 65% roughly of law graduates are women, but have been for a long time. So these arguments that I'm given all the time, people say, oh, but in IT or blah, blah, blah. Yeah, okay, what about law? Tell me why equity partnerships are still pretty much dominated by men when this enormous pipeline of women is available, stays in the workplace, has the experience and still don't make it to equity partnership. Um, which, by the way, I say equity partnership because a few years ago, for the exact reasons you've outlined, people went, oh, it's about equity partners. It's not about some of the other partnerships, which are important, but that's where women were clustered. So it becomes a pink ghetto. So it's there are a lot of things that feed into that, but it is a problem, yeah. Quotas are still very divisive hmm. right across the board. Um, you're obviously pro, I shouldn't say that, but I think you are pro quotas. They work. They work. We use quotas all the time, by the way. Um, our um, government system has uh, a quota for the number of senators from each state. That's a geographic quota. Uh, when the LNP are in power, it is obligatory. They have a quota, if you like, that the deputy prime ministers from the National Party. We use quotas all the time. Uh, it's about fairness and balance. Um, when it's applied to gender, however, all bets are off. Um, and we hear shrieks of outrage. Look, um, again, I'm going to just quote Sam Austin, who was the first woman to go onto an AFL board all those years ago. Um, and she said, so many people said to her, you're a token, it's a quota appointment. And she said, I got over that, worrying about that. As far as I was concerned, it was important a woman did that and leaves the door open for other women. And, um, yeah, she's right. And, look, if this was... If we could rely on us just leaving this to natural change, then we'd do it. But there's no evidence that allowing, uh, not, not having quotas, not having targets, not having interventions, um, then results in change. It doesn't. And we know that. And we know it from around the world. So where we have seen quotas introduced, by the way, often by conservative governments, 
I think this is another myth that's been very convenient in Australia, these left-wing progressives. Not at all. The Norwegian government that brought in the original quotas for women on listed entity boards, conservative. So they just said they, they kept giving the business sector deadlines um, and they never changed anything, so they put them in. And the interesting thing is the people, uh, the executives who'd been very anti the quotas soon became quite strong fans of them. They said it wasn't that bad. We didn't have to change our uh, domicile, which some of them were threatening to do. They actually said it improved the quality of the board. So, yeah. Loved hearing your response on that uh, because I think uh, just hearing your your initial response around we use quotas everywhere um, was so fabulous. And, and I, can, I can hear so many people in the audience, um, you know, I, maybe the penny dropping when you say that. Um, mm around that sort of space. So look, I could, um, I could and I will at another stage talk to you again, because there's so many things I want to ask, but I, I'll finish up with the final question I ask of everybody, which is from your perspective, what does brave feminine leadership mean? And do you think it needs to change? Um, I think brave feminine leadership for me is an expression I feel slightly conflicted about. I think brave leadership, yes. Um, and I've outlined to you some of the reasons that I sort of resist this idea that there is a style of leadership that is inherent in women. Um, I think good leaders are human beings with a set of skills. So I don't actually think the only issue I would say is that for a lot of women, the word brave is absolutely correct, however, because what we are coming up against um, is as I mentioned, double standards, uh, penalties all the time, quite a, a lot of gutsiness um, to actually, and clarity to kind of keep going uh, and to stick to your guns. And I must say, I was absolutely delighted to see the new CEO of Telstra when yes. she was announced saying, you don't have to behave like a man. Yes. It's one of the first things she said in an early interview. And I thought that was music to my ears. We don't have to behave in a masculine or feminine way to be a good leader. Um, but women are absolutely um, in need of a deep breath um, and to be very clear about what they may confront as they go up. But well, we have some wonderful women leading organisations in Australia. Uh, Susan Lloyd Hurwitz at, at Mervac, but a whole array of them um, and on boards and they're fantastic. I don't think they all lead in the same way, but I think they bring what they do bring um, is a different set of life experiences. So I suppose feminine is the word that I find sort of slightly, but yes, they, they, what they bring is diversity of experience. And wouldn't it be lovely if we just saw more leaders who came out of those culturally rich, culturally diverse backgrounds and some of those other areas that I've mentioned, because they would bring such a wonderful wealth of experience to leadership. So yes, bravery is there. Um, but, you know, the good leaders I've worked for, it wasn't because they were a man or a woman. It was just they were fantastic at leading. They were modest, quite humble. Uh, they listened always to others. Um, and they just had, as I say, that clarity about what they were doing. And that was, you, you know, when you see it, as we always say about leadership, when we try to explain it, you know, when you see yeah. it, you see it really, unfortunately, but you do see it and it's wonderful and it stays with you. I'm sneaking one more in. What are you optimistic yep. Oh, well, as I always say, I am an optimist, absolute optimist, because one of the things about COVID and the pandemic, how quickly we changed when we had to, we can change. 
And my great examples, women's sport. When I was growing up, the idea that women would play professional AFL and cricket was laughable. And I mean that. It was ridiculed. You were told you were ridiculous if you even brought it up. No more. The second one, um, ghastly process that it was, but the same-sex marriage uh, plebiscite showed us that two-thirds of our country absolutely so that was unthinkable when I was growing up we can change norms we absolutely can and we have to and we have to do it quickly and women supporting each other is how it'll happen what a brilliant note to end our conversation so Catherine thank you so much for joining the conversation um, it's been wonderful spending time with you it's been lovely to have the conversation Melissa thank you for having me